Well, for everyone else, you can turn to Matthew chapter 14. We're back in the book of Matthew. And we're looking at the miracle of Jesus walking on water. So Matthew 14, verses 22 to, 20, to sorry, 33. I know the slide says 36. I just couldn't get there. I had to stop at 33. So Matthew 14, 22 to 33. As I typically do, let's start with reading the passage. The Word of God says, Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This isn't the first time that Jesus has calmed a storm. Do you remember? But the disciples' response is different. Did you notice? In the first account, after Jesus calmed the storm, the text tells us in Matthew 8.27 that the disciples marveled and they asked a question. What kind of man is this that the wind and the sea obey him? They question, what kind of man is this? But now... Their response is different. Instead of marveling, we find them worshiping. And instead of asking a question, they make the declaration as to what kind of man this is. Truly, this is the Son of God. Wow. Something is changing in these men as Christ reveals more and more of himself to them. I want to ask you that question. What kind of man do you believe Jesus is? Was he just a good teacher? Was he just a a good role model for a moral life? Is he a crutch for you only when you're in trouble? Is he a genie to you only when you need a favor? Or do you believe truly that he is who the disciples declared him to be? Matthew makes his case that Jesus is 
the Christ. And in the next couple of chapters, he's going to present us with more miraculous uh, events. And then also, he's going to describe different responses that people have to the deity of Christ. It comes to a climax when Jesus asks Peter this question in chapter 16. He asks Peter directly, who do you say that I am? And Peter's response is climactic. And I want you this morning, as we continue through the book of Matthew, imagine that Jesus is asking you that question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you believe, individual, Jesus is? And does your faith rest in him? You may have noticed, uh, as I read the passage, the word immediately came up three times. Immediately. 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 Immediately, in verse 22, 27, and 31. And I've decided to divide the event in three parts around these three moments of urgency that we see. And so, you, you, I could put it this way. Jesus reveals what kind of man he is in three scenes. Scene one, first point in your outline. He is powerful above the storm. He is powerful above the storm. The scene starts with, verse 22, immediately. And the word immediately sets the pace for this event. Look at what Jesus does. He does three things quickly with urgency. The first thing he does is that he forces his disciples into a boat. Sends them to the other side. The second thing that he does is he dismisses the crowd. And the third thing that he does immediately is that he goes up into the mountains. Why? Why this sense of urgency in these three actions? Well, first of all, it's getting late. This is after he has fed the 5,000 plus. They're in a desolate place. People need to go home. That's kind of an obvious and practical reason. But there's other things at play here. The second reason we're given in the book of John. John tells us that in response to Jesus feeding the 5,000, that the crowds were about to come, take him, and make him king. And Jesus perceives this, and he determines this isn't going to happen. That's not his agenda for his first advent. It's not his mission. He did not come to be served as political king, but he came to serve and give his life as a ransom, to be a savior king. And so perhaps that's why Jesus dismisses the crowds with urgency and goes away alone. We are told in this text a third reason why Jesus went up to the mountain alone. The reason we're given in verse 23 is that he went there alone by himself, looked there to pray, to pray. Wow, Jesus can't get to prayer fast enough. Even after a full day of work, ministry, and needy people. Instead of going up to the mountain to retreat, to kick his feet up, to rest, to sleep, we see the Lord rush to his closet. His closet, often you see in the gospel, is the wilderness. That was the place that he could be alone with his father 
and talk to him. And we see Jesus retreat often into prayer. He is compelled to pray. And his example is compelling to us. Consider Jesus moving quickly toward prayer and ask yourself, do I do the same? Do I go to God with such urgency? Do I, in a sense, retreat, rejuvenate, and rest in the exercise of prayer? Man, I want to be just like Jesus in this way. I want to run to the closet and spend time with God. I want to feel like I can't get to the throne room quick enough. That whatever life hits me with, whatever's going on, I need to, I need to spend time alone with the Heavenly Father and pray. And in prayer, find the rest that I need. Find the spiritual rejuvenation that I need. And so we see Jesus alone in the mountains with his Father praying. And this separation of Jesus in the mountains and then the disciples in the boat, this sets up our miracle. This sets up the events that are about to happen. And so we see in verse 23, if you look at down and read it with me, it says, but when the disciples, oh, sorry, but the, sorry, and after he had dismissed the crowd, yes, I'm lining up my notes in my, in my Bible, pardon me. Verse 23, after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. He separated from his disciples. Now, when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So while Jesus is in prayer, the disciples find themselves subject to nature's power. As hard as these, by the way, remember, professional fishermen... As hard as these men try to row their boat to the shore, they are being pushed further and further and further away from it to the middle of the sea. The wind and the waves mercilessly beat them and push them further out. They have lost control to natural elements. Again, in Jesus' miracles, we're often reminded of our limitations. We lack control. We don't have control over nature. And some of us have been mercilessly beaten by it. As hard as we try, we cannot control a cursed world. We cannot control a cursed nature. We cannot control cursed bodies. We cannot even control the cursed soul. Who can? Who has that kind of power? Well, there's only one. And if you look down again at verse 25, you'll see who he is. In the fourth watch of the night, he, that is Jesus, came to them, walking on the sea, walking above the storm and the tumultuous water. First of all, fourth watch of the night, what time is it? Between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. This is late, late night, or you could say early, early morning. So, implication, disciples struggling all night through this storm. Jesus, meanwhile, praying, preparing, spending time with his Father all night before this storm. And when the time is right, Jesus came to them. What a picture. 
He came walking on the sea. Jesus is not subject to the elements. The elements are subject to him as Lord. Now, there are a few insects that can walk on water. Can you name them? I have pictures of them up here. One of them is the fishing spider. One of them is the fire ant. And the other is called the water strider. Now, these insects can walk on water because of the design of their bodies and their very hairy legs. So it doesn't penetrate the surface tension of water. There are a few animals that can run on water. They can't walk, but they can run on water. This includes, I have pictures of them too. Uh, Oh, I guess I lost the third picture. Um, There's the basilisk lizard, the pygmy gecko, which I'm, I'm missing the pygmy gecko, and the western grebe bird. Okay, these are just a few animals that can run on water, largely because of the shape of their feet and the momentum and their weight. Several men have tried, and they have failed to run on water. We cannot run fast enough, nor is a human being designed. Our feet are not designed as buoyant devices on top of water. And so what we see Jesus do in this miracle is defy nature. Defy natural law. He literally brought natural law into submission under his feet. He stops gravity. He alters mass. Surface tension spontaneously increases underneath him. Water molecules, they bond at his command. And it's almost as if their purpose, they fulfill their purpose, which is to lift their creator up. To put him above them. And the waves can only go as high and as far as he allows them to. The wind dares not strike him. He is divine. And this is another proof of his divinity. Nature worships him before men do. And if men will not bow to him in worship, well, the wind and the waves will. He is the Son of God. What kind of man is this? What kind of man on is this that he can walk on water? Well, he is powerful and he is above the storm. The sovereign king. He is, while we lack control, he is absolutely in control. Scene number two. Not only is he powerful over the storm, he is present in the storm. He is present in the storm. What, Je- what Jesus is doing here is so supernatural that verse 26 says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Ghost in the Greek is the word phantasma, which is where we get the word phantom. And their response is knee-buckling horror. They are scared. It says in the text, they were terrified. This is like shaking in fear. The word uh, used for they cried out in fear when they said it is a ghost, crying out in fear. That's the same phrase used for a a vehement shriek. It's the same word or the phrase used for the demon-possessed man out in the village. It's the same one used for the death cry of Jesus on the cross. It's the same use for a woman in childbirth. They are shrieking in fear, terrified. Fear has overtaken them. 
Are you afraid? Has fear overtaken you? Are you afraid of making the wrong decision in life? Who to marry? What program to choose? What career? Maybe you ask what if a lot and the what ifs cripple you. Are you afraid of losing control in your life? Are you afraid of losing your business, your job, losing your kids, losing your health? Are you afraid of people that could easily take away your comforts, your security, your freedoms? Are you afraid of persecution? Are you afraid of war? Are you afraid of loss, of a loved one, of a child, a mother, a father, a friend? Are you afraid of the unknown? The uncertainty of life paralyzes you. Fear can sometimes cripple us. It can overwhelm us and leave us spiraling into despair. It may not be ghosts, phantoms in our life, but every single one of us can relate to the disciples in the area of fear. We are afraid. And by the way, some of us are in the very heart of the storm in our life. The heart of a trial that is absolutely overwhelming and crippling and can easily succumb to fear in the midst of that storm. You need to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 14, 27. Notice, but immediately. Immediately. Again, we see that word of urgency, a quick response. How does Jesus quickly respond to the fear of the disciples? Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus rushes to meet their fear with words of comfort in the midst of the storm. I mean, what a relief it would have been for the disciples to not only hear those words, take heart, but to to familiarize, to be recognizing the familiarity of that voice that spoke them. It is Jesus. It's our Lord. It's the one who's calmed storms before, the one powerful over storms, sickness, Sin and death. It's Jesus. He's with us in the storm. Those words take heart. Sweet words. Used at just critical moments by the Lord. I have a couple examples up on the screen. When when Jesus said take heart. It's the words of Christ to the paralytic. He tells him take heart my son. Your sins are forgiven. It's Jesus' words to the unclean woman. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. It's Jesus' words to his disciples. When he foretells that he's going to leave, he says, don't worry, take heart. I have overcome the world. In critical moments of despair, desperation, fear, in trouble, Jesus offers those words as sweet ointment. A great anchor to your life. If you are Christ's, hear these words this morning in the midst of your storm. Take heart. Why? Why should I take heart when when life is crumbling around me? When I am so afraid, Jesus gives you the reason. It is I. I'm here. I'm with you. 
Do not be afraid. Will you receive those words today? In the midst of your storm? The presence of the Messiah? See, the one with power over storms, the one with power over sickness, over sin and death, is also the one who cares enough to be present with us in it. He comforts his men with his presence. And by the way, God has been doing this from the beginning of the Bible. Just look at these scripture references. God comforting his people with his presence. Deuteronomy 31.6 Be strong and courageous. Do not fear, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1.5 Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 43.1 Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. John 14 Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so... I would have told you that I go to I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Finally, the great commission, we're familiar with it. Jesus finishes it with this promise. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christian Do you find great comfort and rest knowing that Christ is with you, no matter what you're going through? He is present in the storm. He was present for his men. And the presence of God should bring us comfort, rest, because he's not only powerful over it, but he loves us enough to be present in it. Never forget that promise. Never forget that God promises to always be with his people. God doesn't promise to just take away all the storms in your life. He doesn't promise to reverse the diagnosis. He doesn't promise to heal you, to heal a loved one. He doesn't always promise that. But God promises his presence always. He's with you. He's with you. He is immediately accessible in our pain, in our loss, in our uncertainty. He comes to us in our storm and he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. I'm control over it and I'm present in it. Sweet, comforting words from the Lord Jesus. What kind of man is he? What kind of man is he? He's not only powerful over the storm, he's a God who's present in it. Third, the third scene we see is that he is Savior. He is Savior out of the storm. I originally had life preserver in there. That's why you have the dash in your outline. Um, I was trying to stick with the P's, preserver. Preserver. But sometimes you have to abandon alliteration, all right? 
to capture the full essence of what's happening here. Life preserver isn't enough to describe who Jesus is. He is the mighty Savior. He is the mighty Savior. Psalm 94, 18 says this. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. We see next, Peter is impulsive. He hardly thinks before he speaks, much less acts. Look at what he does in verse 28. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Initially, I thought, well, that's a pretty dumb idea. Why would he want to do that? Why not just wait for the Lord to come to them all the way? I thought, maybe this seems reckless, irrational. Seems like he might be showboating, drawing attention to himself unnecessarily. This is just Peter's personality, so on. But the Lord doesn't rebuke him. The Lord invites him. Says, come. That's interesting. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. The more that I thought about it, the more I admire Peter's immediate devotion and his immediate desire to be with Jesus. Faith moves him. He he doesn't think before he moves toward Jesus. The object is in view. His Savior is in sight. He believes and he rushes toward him. It is faith. It's fruit of faith, albeit little faith, but it is faith. It is Christ's word. His eyes are set on the object. And I just ask myself, and I want to ask you this question, are you inclined to immediately trust God? Are you inclined like Peter to immediately trust Him, to have that desire and devotion to be with Him in the midst of your storm. When you get bad news, or when you hear of some potential trouble in your life, or a problem, what is your first inclination? What's your first response? For me, it's often, I need to get more information. I need to hear a second opinion. I need to talk to my friends. I need to talk to my wife. I need to assess the situation. I think first, how can I fix this? What do I need to do Next, before all of that, couldn't we as God's people, Christians, quietly pray, Lord, I trust you. And I'm coming to you first. Just reminding myself, preaching to myself that I need you. Rush to Christ in faith. No matter what trouble hits you, no matter what news it is, rush to him. The object of your faith, quickly. Just like Peter. Why is it that so often Jesus is our second stop, our third stop, fourth stop, maybe even last stop? The last person we go to in the midst of trouble. He should be our first stop. So Peter got out of the boat, he walked on water, and he came to Jesus And then we get this word, but, but at the beginning of verse 30, uh uh-oh, it was good. His initial instincts were right, immediately trusting in Jesus, good, eyes on the prize, good, 
Walking toward Jesus, good, but not good. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. What happened? He took his eyes off of Christ. He took his eyes off of Christ and he saw the storm. See, this kind of describes the nature of faith. Faith rests in its object. The object of our faith is Christ. We rest and we believe in Him. But when our eyes drift from Him, faith wanes. Jesus asked Peter later, why did you doubt? That word doubt is interesting. The root of doubt is duo, which means two. He had, literally, we would say, second thoughts. See, when we take our faith off the sole object, our eyes off the sole object, and start to look or set our eyes on other objects, our affections, our trust, our dependence is divided. And this is what happens when we doubt. We take our eyes off the single and true object of the Lord Jesus Christ and we look at something else. Our trust is split and we know the phrase, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, it will fall. Nothing, listen to me, nothing outside of Jesus Christ will give you true assurance, will give you comfort, will give you rest in your salvation. Nothing outside of Christ. Fix your eyes on Him for assurance, for comfort, for the rest that your soul needs, even as Christians. Reset your gaze. Fix your eyes on the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. Because only Christ produces faith. Storms produce fear and doubt. And the result of doubt in this situation is sinking. Peter immediately begins to sink. And as he's sinking, we see in verse 30, as he's sinking, he cried out, Lord, save me. Does that sound familiar? Have you been there? Have you prayed that prayer? There's nothing else I can do. Peter can't take another step towards Jesus. In fact, the text doesn't even tell us he reached up. Peter did nothing but cry out and admit his utter depravity. He can't do it. Save me, Lord. Such a simple prayer. But it's packed full of faith. Just trust in Christ. The only one who can save. All Peter can do is cry out. But look at what Jesus does. Again, Jesus, verse 31, immediately. Jesus responds with urgency. Responds quickly. I love that. He responds to Peter's cry. Immediately he's there. And look at what Jesus does. Immediately he reached out his hand and took hold of him. Literally gripped him with his hands. And he said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you? doubt. See, even though this is encouraging, even though Peter's faith is little, Jesus' saving power is mighty. 
Amen? Even though sometimes our faith is little. Oh, our faith is little and we doubt and we struggle. Christ's saving power is mighty. He holds us fast. And what of his, the means by which he saves Peter, it's significant. William Hendrickson, a commentator, writes this. He says, strictly speaking, it would not have been necessary for Jesus to reach out his hand. A simple command would have sufficed. Stop sinking. He could have said that from afar. But that was not his method. Jesus wanted Peter to feel his love as well as experience his power. He wanted Peter to feel his grip, his hold on him. So he reached out his hand and he took hold of him. Isn't that a great picture of salvation? Jesus reaching down. We cannot reach up. We cannot reach heaven. But heaven reaches down and takes hold of us by his love and by his power. Jesus saves. Again, Psalm 94, 18. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Jesus saves. And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. See, the purpose of the storm, it had been realized, accomplished. And so Jesus no longer had use for it. No longer use for the waves of the raging seas. So he just causes it to cease. So we see him not only save Peter from sinking, but he saves his men out of the storm. Because he has power to do that. He's mighty to save. But what kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? He's not here for political power. He commands the storm. He walks on the sea. He comes in the storm and he comforts his people through it. He invites and empowers Peter to walk on water. And when Peter's faith fails, he saves him. And when he enters the boat, the storm stops. What kind of man is this? Well, you see, the disciples declare what kind of man he is. They worshipped him. They, they literally prostrated him themselves and lifted him up. They worshipped him. And you just think, in order for them to say something like this, such an informed statement about the person of Jesus Christ, it's almost as if they had words echoing in their head. They've heard this before. When Jesus was baptized... What did the Heavenly Father say? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You know who, where else they've heard this phrase? They heard the demons cry out. Say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? And so now the puzzle pieces are coming together and it's starting to click. They worship Him and they declare, not questioning anymore, they declare, this is the Son of God. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is no ordinary man. He's divine. He's anointed by God and sent from heaven to save sinners. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, I would be remiss to pass over, I mentioned it briefly, just the reality that this story 
Not only a mighty display of Christ's divine power, but it is a vivid illustration of our salvation in Jesus Christ. What a picture. I mean, we, men and women, despite our greatest efforts, cannot control the storm. We cannot even attain salvation. We're not powerful enough. We're not good enough to stand right before a holy God. Every single one of us is sinking in our sins. Without Christ, we're desperate and depraved. We cannot do it. We cannot even reach to heaven with all our might. But heaven reaches down to us. Jesus Christ, God, humbled himself and became a man and lived among us. He lived a righteous, a perfect life. He laid down his own life, making full atonement as a sacrifice for our sins. He rose from the grave, conquering the curse of sin and death by his power. He is the all-sufficient Savior. And how do you receive him? How do you receive this great gift through Christ, your salvation? A simple cry of faith. Lord, save me. There's nothing else I can do. There's nothing I can do. All I can do is grasp or sink. Receive Christ by faith. If you haven't done so, would you do it today? Would you respond to the great offer of Christ and salvation in faith? Pray that prayer, you and the Lord. Lord, save me. And the greatest storm in your life, the greatest problem, not necessarily what's going on around here, although those are problems, but what is going on in here. You're a sinner that needs a Savior. You're sinking. You're drowning without Christ. So trust in Him today. And Christians who do have Christ as your Savior, remember, He's holding you fast. Remember His great work of salvation. And so you're saved in here from your sins and you're walking out in the world and there's still storms. There's still trouble. And you're in fear. You're living in doubt sometimes. And you just don't have rest. Rest in Christ the author and finisher of your faith. Look back to Him, the object. Trust in Him. Depend. Rest in His great salvation. When our faith is small, when we doubt, when our eyes wander from the object of our faith, He remains and He holds us fast by His strength. I'm reminded of the the new hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. These are great lyrics to just take home. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will Hold me fast. Repeat that to yourself this week. Trust Christ, the mighty Savior King, powerful over the storm, present in the storm, your Savior out of the storm. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for providing such a salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. We are overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness. That despite the reality that we cannot save ourselves, that we are not good enough, that we are not strong enough, that we cannot even conjure up within ourselves the faith to see or to believe, that we are desperately in need of someone outside of ourselves to save us, to open our eyes, to embrace you, that you gave us Christ, who entered this world as a man, and who reached down, in a sense, from heaven, and grasped us by his power and with his love, He saved us desperate sinners by his great sacrifice, his perfect life, his glorious resurrection. And the only thing we can do in response, say, Lord, save me. I pray that for somebody in this room who hasn't prayed that prayer, God, that you would open their eyes to believe that they would pray that prayer and receive Christ today. I pray for us who do believe Sometimes, Lord, our, our eyes wander from the object of our faith and we begin to doubt. And we sometimes succumb to fear. Lord, help us to grasp, grasp Christ, to remember who Christ is, to see him, to behold him, to love him. And remember what he did for us and trust and rest in the great salvation that Christ has provided. And that even in the midst of our storms, he is there. In the midst of our storms, he's with us. Promised, promise in the Great Commission. You never leave or forsake us. We need that promise today. Especially, especially in such a tumultuous world that we live in. So Christ, be our rest. Christ, strengthen our faith. We believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.